We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. Not every project needs a project manager, but every project needs project management. And that's usually the piece that is missed. And then that's where a lot of mistakes end up happening or missed pieces because no one's actually driving the project and no one's really looking at all of the individual pieces and then knowing how it all fits together. And if you're not hiring someone, that someone is you. After more than a dozen years designing and managing homes, cafes, fitness studios, restaurants, and hospitals, Gabriella Milgram learned what makes renovation and remodeling projects a success and why they fail. The bottom line, it's not about the vision, it's about the strategy. Gabriella, a savvy British Columbia-based interior designer and professional project manager, provides clients advice that's big on clarity and free of fluff. She knows firsthand the overwhelming feeling of being hit by conflicting options and advice from expert sources online, in magazines, and on the latest reality television shows. According to Gabriella, successful projects require clearly identified design drivers, strategies, and management tactics from the outset. That's why she's passionate about ensuring her clients have the knowledge and tools they need up front. Everyone, she says, should feel equipped to build a home they love without feeling like a failure or fraud. Gabriella, welcome to Home Where You Belong. I really appreciate you taking some time out to join us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Awesome. I I look forward to our conversation. Well, let's get right into it. I did my homework. I did a little research on you. Very interesting work that you do. One article I read said that you knew the type of work that you wanted to do from a young age, maybe um, as early as 16. Is that accurate, first of all? And if so, can you tell me a little bit about that journey into design and project management? Yeah, definitely. So I have always been a very creative person and since I was in infancy. And as I got older into teenage years, I really knew that what I wanted to do was to do something in the creative field and to help shape space was really just what I really loved. To my mother's dismay, I used to constantly redo my room and reconfigure (laughs) things all the time. So I was like, this is what I want to do. And that ended up becoming basically what my career ended up, not entirely knowing how it would go, but I went into, or I got accepted into my Bachelor of Interior Design program in 2008, graduated in 2012, and started my interior design career in the hospitality sector, which was restaurants and hotels. My intent in terms of becoming an interior designer was to actually work in hospitals. I'd spent a lot of time in healthcare as a child. So that was really what spurred my interest in terms of shaping the way that people experience spaces. Okay, and it was actually through the opportunity with uh, health or with hospitality that I became a project manager. And I realized that this was kind of how I was going to create that, that duality of what I was specialized in and ended up eventually getting into healthcare as well. That's awesome. Interesting how that kind of integrated. As you mentioned, your career's already, you've already kind of, um, 
past the dozen years mark in your career. Um, and I'm impressed by the variety of projects you've already worked on. You, you mentioned hospitals, but you've, you've done everything from homes to wineries, breweries, a fitness center, um, and others that I, I could go on and on. But is there a particular project or two that um, sticks out in your memory? There's two. One of them was one of the very first jobs I had was working for a local like restaurant chain that's in BC. It's called White Spot. And one of the very first projects that I took from the very beginning of infancy in terms of feasibility and if it was going to actually end up being able to take place all the way through into final construction. And I managed that entire construction myself was one of their quick service restaurants out okay. in Surrey. So that was one that I was like my big kind of breaking moment where I was like, I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the one that for me really set home was when I got to work on uh, one of a projects in UBC hospital, which was an RMS training lab. And that was kind of this really lovely full circle of me being able to do something for the healthcare workers and the the people that I had spent so much time with in, in youth and being able to give back in a way that was really quite warming. Uh, so you could really see that connection firsthand pretty early on then, I guess, in your career. Yes. Well, from your website, it appears that maybe you're now using all this experience that you've gained over the last 12 years uh, to focus on women in particular, to align their design ideas alongside execution best practices so they can really get to that sweet spot where they want to get the home of their dreams. Um, is that accurate? And if so, can you tell me kind of what led you in that direction? So part of my career, half my career has been in full interior design and then half my career has been in project management and just full project management, which is really where I differ from most interior designers okay. is that I have a full on experience in managing all of the back end portions creating the budgets, looking at all of the timelines, managing those consultants, and all of that insight into how projects need to actually be run and the steps that need to take place at the beginning of a project okay. for it to even be able to be something that goes, yes, this makes sense to move forward. Um, so that's really where what separates me from a lot of just sole interior designers or interior design studios. And it was really when... I started to get into it and I started to work solely in the residential side that I realized that there was this very large information gap. Okay. And, and part of it comes from all of the design TV shows and <laughs> a lot of the things that you see online. There, there are a lot where, of them. <laughs> there are a lot of them and some are better than others. And But a lot of them, they just show this very like glamorous idea of what renovating is. And they show a little bit of like, oh, these little things happened and but they solved it in the end but they don't actually show the grit. They don't show the back end. They don't show how those decisions were made and really where any kind of leniency had to come in in order to be able to progress effectively. Sure. So, and with that, people are going into renovations or giant remodels or new builds, not fully understanding what the process is, what that means for them from a budget, from a timeline, and really how all those decisions need to be made earlier than they think it does. So then they just end up spinning their wheels and then just making decisions that invariably end up being mistakes later on. Which must be really frustrating. Why did you decide to really focus particularly, or especially with women in particular? Well, as a woman and being <laughs> in the construction industry, you 
yeah, there's a lot of stigma against it. Okay. And I, I've worked in the project management side. So construction management, boots on the ground, wearing hard hats, telling big strong men what it is that they need to be doing. And I receive pushback. So if mm. you're a female in your home and you're trying to get trades or contractors to do something for you, and you don't fully know what it is that you want and fully how to be asking those questions or what questions need to be asked, right. you're often placed in this position of vulnerability as well as being taken advantage of or demeaned. And for me, I mean, I've received all of that. So it, it really struck this nerve when I started to see it happen a lot in clients when I started to do more residential design and construction, where they were treated in ways that I've been treated. And I was like, well, I have the opportunity to make a change here and to be able to educate in a, you know, a fun and inspiring, no fluff kind of way where it's like, these are the steps and these are the things that you need to be doing to set your projects up for success. Sounds like you can be a real ally based on your experience and expertise. You know what you're talking about and you have that project management experience too, which is awesome. And that's often the missing piece is it's not necessarily like not every project needs a project manager, but every project yeah. needs project management. And Absolutely. that's usually the piece that is missed. And then that's where a lot of mistakes end up happening or missed pieces because no one's actually driving the project. And no one's really looking at all of the individual pieces and then knowing how it all fits together. And if you're not hiring someone, that someone is you. So <laughs> someone needs to be on top of it. You've been quoted as saying a successful design project isn't about the vision so much as it's about the strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about what do you mean by that? So I get it. The exciting part of starting any project is diving in and being like, I want it to look this way. That's the sexy part. That's what's glamorized on Instagram, on Pinterest, in all of these design shows. They show you this very beautiful vision board and they're like, this is what it's going to look like. And then a fast cut to halfway progress and then it miraculously looks beautiful in the end. That's not actually what ends up taking place. Wouldn't it be and great if it worked that way, right? I know, right? <laughs> five hours later, it's done. You should see my office three weeks later. No, it takes time. But it glamorizes it. And it gives this idea that if we create this vision and we solely look and focus on what it is that we want it to look like, everything will work out in the end. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of decisions that need to be made at the upfront portion that impact your design. And in design school, that's pretty much the second thing that you learn. The first thing is obviously like your principles and elements of design. Sure. And then the second portion that you're taught is programming. And if you're not an interior designer and you're not, don't intend to go to school for it, you would never know that this process takes place. Okay. But a very skilled interior designer and architect will ask you a series of different questions when they're brought into your project in terms of what's working, what's not working, how do you want the space to, to work, um, what functional needs. They will literally just monitor and review you, how you interact in the space, and then they're making decisions in terms of how that needs to be changed and modified based on what your actual goals and needs are. Okay. And that's what, when you bring someone in, that's what we do for you. But if you're not bringing someone into the project, that step is missed. Okay. So then okay. we, we focus on the prettiness. We don't focus on why we're making the decisions and then adding the prettiness to the why. 
So it sounds like obviously having that strategy piece, it's important to have that from the outset. Yes. That's why they and call it a strategy. <laughs> it's the strategization, um, yeah. which is a word apparently I made up. But yes, it is. It's it's the strategy. And it's it's not necessarily full-on strategy. It's more digging deep into yourself and really asking, why does this need to happen? I have a client who redid her office. And she, again, did what everyone does, which is where they go on Pinterest. They find inspiration images. They're searching different things make a vision board, decide I want to piece these pieces together. And then she designed and did her office. But she never really looked at how she needed the space to work, how mm -hmm. she worked in the space and how things needed to relate to one another. So two years later, she's going, I don't have the storage that I need. I don't have, it doesn't work the way that I need. Like I've got stuff over on one side of my office that really should be over here. And it's because those questions were never asked. So part, yeah. So it's part of it really is, is asking the right questions up front. And, and I could see having the value of, of someone other than yourself that, you know, a little more objectivity, maybe more experience to think of some questions that you might not think of. Yes. And then part of it is also really looking at your priorities. We get very lost in this idea that everything has to happen at once. And sometimes <laughs> you can do that. Sometimes your budget doesn't allow so then when we're looking through, when we're making those decisions, we're saying these things need to happen. Then we create a priority list of like, these things are the needs in order to solve this problem and this end goal. Right. And these things are the nice to haves that if money allows, like, yes, it'd be great. And these are the ones that they can get chopped if money is not an option and we run out of funds and they can be done at a later date. So but really, if we don't create that list and relate it back to that problem and that goal that we're trying to to modify in basically, but we're trying to modify from the intent of renovating or remodeling, then mm -hmm. all we're doing is we're just doing a tactile facelift and we're not really solving the problem. That's really, it sounds like purposeful prioritization. That's kind of hard to say, but <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing what you're, what you're, trying to accomplish and then, um, you know, having a prioritized approach to the steps to make it a reality. Yeah. And then some projects are faceless. Some projects are literally like, I want to repaint this room and change the color scheme and repaint this cabinet because I don't like it. And if that is all that it is, then that's great. But most of the time when we take on renovations and remodeling projects, there's a larger intent behind it. Sure. And it's driven by something isn't working. And if we don't dive deep enough into that, then we're not ever really solving that problem. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we've been talking about renovation and remodeling. Um, you have a lot of experience in this area, so I'm sure you've seen things go well and you've seen things not go so well. So why is it these kind of projects often go off the rails and how do you help your clients get them back on track? The... There's a few of them. There's pretty much three main reasons. Okay. The primary one is designing as you go. Okay. So, and this usually happens when you take on projects by yourself and say you decide that you're going to do a massive kitchen living room re gut and remodel and you just jump right in and you start tearing things apart, deciding I'm going to bring in this kitchen person to do my cabinets and I'm just going to make all these decisions as I go. When we have this knee-jerk reaction, we're not looking at everything in terms of how it fits together, and we're not really understanding how other decisions impact the decisions that we're trying to make at the beginning. 
Okay. So let me give you an example. In a kitchen project, if we hire the kitchen designer before we really thought about what it is that's going on in that space and we haven't picked what it's going to look like. So we don't know what we want for our cabinetry. We don't know what we're doing for our countertops, what the overall look is going to be. We haven't sourced and made the selections for our appliances and our plumbing fixtures. The kitchen designers coming in, they're giving you a floor plan and you fall in love with it. And you're like, yes, let's go. And you move forward. And then a few weeks to months later, you make the selections for your appliance package and your plumbing fixtures. And you go and you purchase them. And then you give that information to your kitchen designer and they're going, well, we didn't account for this, these clearances. So now we have to change the design. And mm. the design that you fell in love with can no longer happen. And then if you make the decisions in terms of cabinet styles and colors and wood elements and stuff, after you've actually brought them in, the quote that they've given you is inaccurate because mm. all of a sudden they've based it off of base prices. And if you're doing wood here and you're doing all these fine details, that cost goes up. And the cost that they're giving you is based on the information that you have at the time that you bring them on board. Okay. So the more information you can give them, the more accurate that pricing can be. So then you can make more accurate decisions later on. Okay. So that's that's the first one. And that relates into the second and the third one, which is not knowing your numbers and then not making a priority list. Okay. So in this whole process of this kitchen, if we'd made all these selections in terms of countertops and tiles and what we wanted the cabinets to look like and everything ends up getting bigger and bigger and building and we can no longer afford it. If we don't have a priority list that says these are the needs to haves and these are the things that can get cut and this is where I want to spend my money. Right. We don't know where it is that we can value engineer and we can whittle down to bring the budget back into alignment. And then part of that budget thing, that process is not really doing enough research from the beginning to know how much it could potentially cost. So we're just pulling a number out of thin air and sure. we're deciding we're going to do a big kitchen remodel and it's going to cost $30,000. Well, probably not. So if you don't do enough research to begin with and you don't really look at like appliance packages and what kind of cost things are, and you're going and saying, I want this laundry list of things, but for this amount of money, they don't align. So it really just seems like it keeps going back to that upfront planning, that knowing your purpose, knowing your priorities, knowing yes. <laughs> why why you're doing what you're doing. And it can make the difference between um, a successful project and, and or encountering, I would think, a lot of frustration, time delays, or, or just project mm -hmm. that just won't work. Well, exactly. And then you having to make decisions, which are impacted because something's already gone forward. Say your cabinets have already been made and all of a sudden you're having to make these decisions that impact what you actually wanted to take place and you're compromising. So yes, you're hitting that budget that is the number that you have, but you're also impacting what the general intent was right. as well as like what you really wanted the space to be. And all of a sudden you're compromising on that for yourself where if it had been kind of molded and massaged throughout the process, you could still end up with something that hits all of those boxes, but maybe in a little bit of a different way. Right. This next question, you've kind of answered a little bit already, but what are some of the most common mistakes that people make in remodeling or renovation projects? And um, do you have any suggestions on how they could be avoided? 
So this one I'm going <laughs> is really more related back to not understanding your design style and picking elements because it's what we see. Okay. So there's ways of bringing trendiness and kind of what you're seeing that's po like plastered across your social media feeds and in design shows in a way that can be more efficiently and effectively executed that if you get bored of it in two to three years, it's not breaking the bank. Right. Where we fall trap is that we see all of these really trendy spaces and what the trends are. Like right now we're in a black and white trend. Okay. So you do all of these things in terms of making, say, your kitchen cabinets solely black, doing all these very big, bold Spanish style tiles. Those elements as hard fixtures and pieces that are very expensive in your space date your home. Yes. So, and then you're on trend. And then, yeah, it might look great now, but in a couple of years, when things start to shift and you start to realize that maybe you didn't actually like all that brass, but it's what you saw. Now, all of a sudden you're having to change things out and to spend money again, when if we had really understood what we wanted and what our style reflects, we could have implemented the bulk of that throughout and then brought those little trendy pieces in, in more cost-effective ways. That obviously, A, makes a lot of sense, but it can be really challenging because there's some great um, advertising out there, you know, through <laughs> all social, social media and these TV shows that, you know, make these things look so appealing. And, and a lot of them are, but maybe that that appeal won't last um, as long as we might think. So unless you have the budget to be making updates every two years, at some point, <laughs> those are the kind of good questions to ask up front. And you, you might be someone who really loves black, white, and brass. And like, that is your design style and what you're drawn to. And if that is the case, then wonderful. But a lot of the time what happens is that it's because it's what we see. So it's, we think it's what we want rather than actually really diving into what we ourselves really enjoy in terms of our style and how that can be reflected back into our homes. Right. Well, you know, you've talked about the, you know, the design piece or, you know, is is kind of the fun piece when you're thinking about the way you want a room or house to look. Um, I really like that part, too. In fact, I'm getting ready to relocate from a home to a, a condo downtown, and I'm starting to think about the types of choices to make related to design to the interior. You've seen a lot of projects. Is there a common design mistake you see people making fairly often we'd be picking paint first okay so when we're picking paint there's two ways of of doing it basically if you are moving into an existing space say a you're relocating right. and you've got this living room and it's a blank slate for you you're not bringing any of your furniture or anything with you you're starting fresh then at that point, you can make the decisions in terms of what you want that space to look like because it's what you love. So say you really love blue. Go ahead, paint that entire living room blue, and then you can bring in the furniture pieces and the decor pieces afterwards that then relate to the overall environment and quality of space that you're trying to create. Okay. But what often ends up happening is we move into spaces or we are left with existing elements and we have our furniture and we have a painter who's going, I need a paint color right now. And we're going, well, I don't know, just painted this. And then at that point, we pick the wrong undertone and your undertones actually relate to your biggest 
design elements and features in your space. Okay. So if you have a, say a sofa, that's like an off cream, you would relate the wall color to that undertone because it's the largest piece of furniture within your space. The worst thing that you can do is to pick a very, very white, crisp white. And then you have this like off creamy undertone and all of a sudden it will make your sofa look dirty. And you won't understand right away why the room feels off and it's not really fully working. It's because undertones weren't really fully understood. It's amazing how much impact color can have, isn't it? You know, in the, in the paint and the design choices that we make. Yes, definitely. It's huge. And, and the hard part now is that with all of this whites and very like light off white colors and like grayages and things, the undertones are very minuscule and it's hard sometimes to identify it. The easiest way is to look at it against like a piece of paper that is a crisp white because then you could start to see the nuances which you might not have been able to have seen just in a paint chip on its own. But it was, so we do that and we pair the undertones to the largest pieces. And then we start bringing in the design elements, which is pulling the colors that bring this base together from your main focal features. So okay. if you have a really big art piece or a bold area rug, you're going to pull all of those different colors. And that's how you're going to create a room that flows throughout your home feels put together and then you can mirror those colors within different spaces. So really it's undertones and understanding how to bring that color so that it creates intention flow. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm ignorant here. What exactly <laughs> do you mean by undertones? So it's more prevalent in the off whites and the creams and the, the grayages, but it's really how paint is, is pigmentized. Okay. You've got all the little different paint globules basically of the, of the pigment that goes into the paint. So a cream will sometimes have yellow and orangey red undertones to it. Oh, Same okay. sometimes also with a white. If it's a really, really crisp white, it will have a bluey gray undertone. If it is more of a softer white, sometimes by the way that it's pigmented, it has more of a yellow undertone. But you won't really know how that's reading until you look at it against like a pure white, which would be a piece of paper or, or a pure paint chip. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that clarification. One of the challenges of any home renovation or remodeling project is um, they all they almost always seem to go over budget. Any tips on how to avoid that? Yes. So I have a YouTube video. So subscribe to my YouTube channel and it comes out by the time we're recording right now, it'll come out in about three weeks, but okay. it goes into the seven critical parts that need to be factored into any construction budget. Okay. And some people do some of the beginning ones, the areas in which most people either don't include them and they forget to include them or allocate incorrectly are your contingency funds, your escalation costs, and your reserve fund. Okay. So a contingency fund, most people understand what that means. The problem is, is that the percentage that is typically advised to include as your contingency fund is typically 5%, which is often way too low. Because think of it this way. If you have a $60,000 kitchen renovation, 5% is $3,000. $3,000 in a kitchen gut will not go very far if you discover mold, 
asbestos, plumbing that needs to be rewired that you didn't account for, all of these variables that you didn't, that were risks that could happen that you didn't really think might, that's what your contingency fund is for. Okay. So too low of a contingency fund will lead you to be over budget very quickly and then having to make decisions to cut or okay. to get more money. So that's the first one. The second one, which most people never do and think of, is escalation costs. If you are thinking of your project and you're designing it and you're picking things and you're developing your budget, say now in 2023, but I know I'm not going to get to do that project until 2024, I have to factor in an entire year of escalation costs because it's not a question of if costs will go up, it's a question of how much. And the escalation costs include everything within your budget, including your contingency fund and your labor and taxes and everything. Because if everything, if materials and products go up, everything else will go up. Right, right. There was some, yeah. a lot of challenges with escalating <laughs> costs during the whole COVID pandemic. Yes. Right? Well, hey, first just being able to get <laughs> supplies. <laughs> materials, things, but, period. <laughs> yeah, but then the cost of them were, were also going up. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, it construction costs went up to about five to six percent during the COVID years. It has regulated a bit. It's still best to factor in about five percent per year for escalation at this point because it's still kind of regulating. And the third one that no one does, unless you've ever been in project management, is your reserve fund. And your reserve fund is like a security blanket bubble wrap for your entire project. It is a separate pot of money that sits in a different bank account and you know that it's there and it forms part of your budget costs, but it doesn't form part of the budget that you're tracking your costs against. And it's there as like this safety piggy bank. So if something happens on your project that you could never have anticipated, you didn't factor it in as something as a possibility for a contingency, that is where you have the option and funds that are already been like, yes, I have this amount that you can pull from and increase your budget amount. But if you're working with a contractor, you don't necessarily tell them that you have that amount. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the, if a contractor gives you a quote for work, that would form part of your hard costs in your budget because that's all of the costs associated with building whatever it is that you're building. Then there's aspects that add on to that, that form your budget. So the biggest mistake that people make in budgets, period, regardless if they're adding these things or not, is that they think that the budget that the contractor gives them is their budget. Okay. That is not the case. You have costs and you have things that you need to be responsible and you need to be tracking that are separate from what the contractor is. Outside of that. Yeah. Speaking of contractors. (laughs) <laughs> I have a lot of friends and a few family members that are really do-it-yourself people. I wish I was one of those people. I am not. My my uh, talent really um, stops at being able to hammer in a nail or change a light bulb. But mm-hmm. so I do quite a bit of hiring of um, of of contractors. Do you have any particular just general guidance or advice for people when they're trying to decide? When would a project be a good candidate for a do-it-yourself project versus when might it be best to really 
go after a professional for persistence? So this one really first thing would be based upon your handiness, like yourself. (laughs) If you're sitting there and you're going, I am not handy. I'm going (laughs) to screw it up. I don't want to learn how then you already know with ingrained within yourself, you're not a DIYer and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, If you're someone who's like, yeah, I kind of like to dabble around and to figure out if it's something that I could do, then 100% go into the direction to determining if you want to take on the project. And there are a lot, there are a lot more um, do it yourself manuals or tutorials. Mm -hmm. I mean, YouTube and Google, you, you can learn a lot if that's something you're interested in doing, but like exactly. if, if I'm not really wanting to go down that path, doesn't really matter. Right. Well, yeah. And then, and then for you, it'd be like, it'd be a moot point. You'd be like, oh, I'm not even going to even fathom <laughs> it. Yeah. But you know, like for me, there's certain things I'll do and there's certain stuff that I'm like, nah, I'm good. But the easiest way, if you're on the fence is to get a quote from a contractor, let's use a deck for an example. You're like, I want a deck built and you get a quote and it's, say $6,500 okay. and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, you're charging me $55 an hour for labor. Like that's ridiculous. I'm going to build this myself. Before you immediately jump into saying, I'm going to build this deck myself, really look at what that would mean. Yep. So how much time, and he says it's going to take him two weeks to do it. How much time is it realistically going to take you to do it? If you're only working evenings and weekends, probably four or five weeks, Okay, so you're doubling at that point. And then what are you losing by doing it yourself? So are you missing time with your family? Are you not going away on weekends? Because you're spending all Saturday and Sunday building your deck. What is it that you are missing out on and those opportunities to take on this project? And then what is your time worth? Okay. So if you're a parent and you're spending time with your, you're losing out spending time with your kids, that value of your time has a higher cost to it than probably $55 an hour. So that becomes your first basis of being like, is this worth it to pay someone? And then the second thing is on top of materials, what do you need to buy or rent to make that project happen? Okay. If you don't have a saw, you don't have a table saw, you don't have a miter saw, you don't have a power tools, you have to buy them. What's that cost? Are you renting them? What is that cost? And then how does that work into if the $6,500 is worth it or if you want to build it yourself? And you might end up spending more or yep. close to that price yourself, you know. Exactly. And 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 also taking a lot of your own time. That's a, Those are good questions to consider. And sometimes it depends on where you're at in your life. Like for me, I'm pregnant right now. So there are things that I would normally do. And there's things now where it's like I have a window where I need stuff to get done that the value of hiring someone to do it has increased because I just needed to get done. That's a good point. (laughs) Situations change, right? Life, exactly. Life changes, things happen. And so that should factor into your decisions too. Well, since I'm not a do it yourself or I I do work with uh, quite a few contractors and I've had some really good ones. And like everyone else, I've had a horror story or two. Any tips for any particular red flags you should look out for if you're if you're thinking about hiring a contractor or a handyman or a woman? Yes. So I've been on, in all my experience, I have been on the receiving end of a crummy contractor that walked away with $2,500 of my money and never came back. So oh. I know, <laughs> I know how you know, it feels. You've been there, yep. 
I've been there and I was like, oh, Gabby, you know better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, really the big red flags are if they come to you and you're talking about a project and they demand payment right away to hold your spot, that is a red flag. Okay. If they put pressure on you to proceed and be like, oh, well, you know, I've got this really short window. I need a decision right now. We need to move forward. That is a red flag. And the third is say you're like, yes, let's move forward. You've come to an agreement. And then they require you to pay for materials and items before they're even at your home. That is a red flag. Okay. Because pretty much they are placing urgency on you. And they are requesting funds for work that hasn't been done. And yes, contractors should not be your bank where they're holding large amounts of money that you are then paying months and months later. Right. But they also, there needs to be a give and take where it, there's a bit of a trust factor that needs to be developed at first, mm -hmm. where it's like, are you actually going to show up? Or are you going to be doing the work? And then portion of payment kind of happens. Okay. Good advice. Yeah. You've given us some really good tips and advice already, and we're going to be linking to your website um, where people can get a lot more resources and information about other services you provide and, and that YouTube video that you mentioned earlier. I understand that you're running a free, I think you're calling it the house to home challenge uh, in the coming weeks that runs through the five key design steps that need to be taken to create somebody's dream space. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And uh, if, if somebody signed up for that, what would they walk away with? So really, it goes through the processes that you would need to understand and need to work through in a very simple way in order to come to those decisions that we talked about. So a bit more of the upfront strategy to understand how to make the decisions that then are going to impact the design decisions. And at the end of those three weeks, you will walk away with a profound knowledge of why you actually want to undertake the project and then how that impacts your design decisions, a rough sketch floor plan of the new design direction, roughly to scale so you actually know what's going to fit, what's not going to fit, a list of items that will actually go into that space, handpicked by yourself, and you know that they're actually going to work that they fit that design intent, they fit those needs, they fit the design decisions. So you're not left with all this overwhelm and stress trying to pick things. And then on top of all of that, a complete vision of what your space will look like with all of those exact items picked and with the purchasing layer to know what, what it is that you need to work with in order to achieve that dream design vision. Wow, it sounds like a, it sounds like a lot of great stuff you you play <laughs> with. Uh, impressive that you're willing to offer that for free. I'm assuming that would be done virtually or how would that happen? Yes. So it's a three week kind of boot camp challenge. So there'll be training sessions uh, once or twice a week, which will go into the different bits and the different bits of pieces that you would be adding on to one another, as well as live Q and A's with me. So if you've got questions on how, like, I don't know what I'm doing here, how does this work? Then I can dive further into it and provide that guidance and that feedback. So at the end, you do walk away with an idea of this is what it's going to look like. And I know that the decisions that I've made solve that question of the why. And I, I know that I picked the right decisions and I know what it's going to be. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely include information about that in the show note. This has been really interesting. I could talk to you about design <laughs> and, and project management all day and learn a lot more 
from you, I'm sure, but I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time. So I just have one more question for you. It's a question I usually ask every guest of the podcast, um, and it's pretty simple. What is it that makes you feel most at home? Ooh, so mine is when I feel at ease, both physically and mentally. Okay. So I've I've lived in a variety of different places. Um, I've lived abroad where my space was a room in oh. a big house, lived in tiny apartments and all these things. I walked into houses of people. And my big thing in terms of what gives me this sense of unease is not really knowing where things belong, how I'm supposed to act in that space, what it is that it's supposed to, like the intent of what I'm supposed to be doing. So for me, home and being kind of centered and grounded is that ease of feeling both mentally and physically at ease. Wow. That sounds like kind of um, knowing that purpose and that strategy up front <laughs> of where you are. It seems to keep coming back to that. I see that. <laughs> no, that's a great, that's a great answer. It make, makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much for joining us today, Gabriella. I've enjoyed our conversation. I know listeners are going to benefit from the insights and expertise that you shared. If you'd like to learn more about Gabriella's work and the house to home challenge she mentioned in today's episode, her website um, can be found at GabriellaMilgram.co. That's .co, not .com. And her name is G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-A-M-I-L-G-R-O-M dot co. Did I get that right, Gabriella? Yes, you did. Okay. Perfect. I highly recommend you checking that out. It has some great resources. It's very intuitive and well put together. And of course, it has links to her blog and social media accounts as well. Um, I'm including links in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Thanks again, Gabriella, for being with us today. Thank you so much, Chip. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks again for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about us. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.